Your New Year's Eve mission has been assigned. Safe House invites you to attend Chicago's number one New Year's Eve festivity, the Bond Ball. Ring in the New Year James Bond style with hundreds of your closest friends. Enjoy dancing, drink, and late night debauchery in the unique ambiance Safe House has to offer. Tickets include live DJ, dance party, late night food buffet, two champagne toasts, and a hosted bar until 1.30 a.m. Purchase your tickets at safehousechicago.com before they sell out. This is the second part of a two-part episode. The first part dealt with the description and history of the Shroud of Turin, as well as claims of Shroud Authenticity proponents. This part will discuss claims by Shroud Authenticity skeptics, as well as my thoughts and observations from the research. Those who question the Shroud's authenticity cite a number of flaws and inconsistencies with Shroud proponent claims. Here are some of them. Skeptics often point to the historical record in this case, that there are no reliable, tangible accounts of it before Bishop Darcy's 1389 letter. And about that. The bishop was writing to the Pope to express his and his predecessor's outrage over the shroud being a forgery done by a man to make money off of suckers at the time, who confessed when confronted about it. The bishop wrote, The case, holy father, stands thus. Sometimes in this diocese of twice, the dean of a certain college church to it, that of Larry, falsely and deceitly, being consumed with the passion of avarice, and not from any motive of devotion but only of gain, procured for his church a certain cloth cunningly painted, upon which, by a clever sleight of hand, was depicted the twofold image of one man, that is to say, the back and the front, he falsely declaring and pretending that this was the actual shroud in which our Savior Jesus Christ was enfolded in the tomb and upon which the whole likeness of the Savior had remained, thus impressed together with the wounds which he bore, and further to attract the multitude, so that money might cunningly be wrung from them, pretended miracles were worked, 
stilted men being hired to represent themselves as healed at the moment of the exhibition of the shroud. <laughs> that was, what, two, three, two sentences? <laughs> Look, you have to understand, commas were just given away in the streets back then. That's basically the only punctuation they had. You couldn't walk to church without tripping over a few. He went on to say of his predecessor, Bishop Henry of Poitiers, he discovered the fraud and how the said cloth had been cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who had painted it, to it that it was a work of human skill and not miraculously wrought or bestowed. However, this has been challenged by claims that the letter was never sent to the Pope. Darcisse wasn't the person to get the forger's confession. The forger is never named, no contemporary documents support these claims, and the bishop has been accused of lying about it all out of jealousy, since the shroud was bringing in bank from pilgrims in Larray and not his hood in Troyes. The tennis match continues. A weaker argument, in my opinion, but nonetheless mentionable, is about the biblical details of Jesus' burial cloth. John 19.40 says, then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. John chapter 20, verses 3 through 7 says, Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And Luke 24.12 says, Then arose Peter, and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. These passages talk not only about wound clothes of linen, which some versions have as strips of linen, but the one mentions the separate cloth for the head, like the Sudarium of Oviedo. So the claim is that this style of draping the linen under and over a body is anachronistic to first century practice. The exact translation and interpretation of these passages has been challenged by Shroud advocates, however. In the case of the just-mentioned Sudarium, it too has been called a hoax. Its story started with a chest, which legend said the apostles made and cursed, but King Alfonso VI of Spain bravely opened it in 1075. In it, he found the Sudarium, a piece of the wood of the cross, Jesus' sacred blood, bread from the Last Supper, a robe of the Virgin Mary, and a stone from the tomb. At least, that's how the story goes. It's been claimed that there are numerous accounts of its history prior to 1075, and also that that history was created around that time. I couldn't find what I considered a good, non-biased source for either of these claims, but I did find that radiocarbon dating has been done to the Sudarium and dates it to around 700 CE, which is pretty far back. It's not first century far back, but 
getting closer. This again has been attacked as being mishandled or contaminated. I'll go into more detail about that in a bit. But the dating of this and the shroud links to another consideration skeptics like to bring up. The relic trade. Christian holy items were regularly forged and peddled to those thirsty for physical connections to their faith. Hoaxes were well known then and still are. In fact, the relic industry royally pissed off 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin enough to write a treatise on it. He has some great remarks on the veneration of relics, once commenting that if all relics were brought together in one place, quote, it would be made manifest that every apostle has more than four bodies and every saint two or three. Of burial sheets generally, he continued, quote, Now I asked whether those persons were not bereft of their senses who could take long pilgrimages at much expense and fatigue in order to see sheets of the reality of which there were no reasons to believe but many to doubt. For whoever admitted the reality of one of these suitories shown in so many places must have considered the rest as wicked impostors set up to deceive the public by the pretense that they were each the real sheet in which Christ's body had been wrapped. End quote. Speaking directly about the shroud, he said, quote, How is it possible that these sacred historians, who carefully related all the miracles that took place at Christ's death, should have omitted to mention one so remarkable as the likeness of the body of our Lord remaining on its wrapping sheet? End quote. He then questioned the use of one cloth to wrap Jesus, as opposed to strips, as in the Gospel of John, saying, quote, In short, either St. John is a liar, for all those who boast of possessing the holy suitery are convicted of falsehood and deceit. End quote. I like his sass. His points are valid, though. There have been several relics come and go, and if you have five sheets claiming to be Christ's burial shroud, not even one has to be real, but at least four have to be fake. So, why this one in Turin? By the way, Five is a number I just pulled out of the air. In reality, there were dozens of shrouds at one time because of the relic hoarding going on in the Middle Ages. One church alone in Germany was said to have over 21,000 relics associated with Jesus and his extended universe. 21,000? Sterp apparently didn't find any evidence of spices or bodily fluids in their examinations, though, as previously mentioned, they made a case for blood. Interestingly, not a lot of fuss has been made about the spices, at least not as much as other factors, even though the Bible does mention them in John 19.39, when Nicodemus went to the tomb and, quote, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. A hundred pounds of spices and none of it shows up on this shroud? Further, Hebrew law dictated cleansing of a corpse before wrapping. Why was there blood then? Analysis of blood flow has also shown that the image in the shroud would have needed to be hanging in a Y position to have blood flow like the stains supposedly indicate. Further, further, blood does not stay red as it ages. It turns brown or black. The supposed blood on the shroud retains a red color. I'm going to circle back to this in a bit. Getting into finer details, the nail marks have been questioned, 
as the Bible says he was nailed through the hands and the image shows holes in the wrists. The location of the holes doesn't seem to be typical Roman practice compared to actual examples from history. See a 1968 tomb discovery in Jerusalem of a crucifixion victim called Jehoanan and a 2007 set of bones near Venice, both of which had heel bone nail damage but not wrist damage. I think it's generally assumed that hands were tied in crucifixion. Keep in mind though, this would assume a standard of practice which we simply don't have the sample size to verify. A guy in Rome could do it differently than a guy in Jerusalem, you know. The weave of the linen has been questioned. Proponents say it's indicative of the cloth of a rich man like Joseph would buy, but skeptics counter that the three-to-one herringbone twill weave and fabric didn't come about until the Middle Ages. I believe there's several examples of that from the Middle Ages, while shrouds that have been found intact from the first century have a pretty simple weave, comparatively. Ironically, early examinations of the photographs, as mentioned, dealt with the body's proportions and were said to be anatomically flawless. More recent examinations have shown that not to be the case. The head is disproportionate, appearing to be 5% smaller than the body. The forehead is oddly small, The right forearm and hand are elongated, presumably to cover the genitals. The back image is actually longer than the front image, just by a little bit, but shouldn't be by any. There's also no navel or belly button, an oddity among the rest of the details. Then there's the hair, which looks nice and neat at the side of the head. Maybe a little too neat because hair doesn't hang nicely down from crown to shoulders on a body laying on its back. Perhaps even more damning, according to skeptics, is the lack of what's referred to as wraparound distortion. If you slathered your head in paint and wrapped a sheet around it, not only would you get face, neck, and ears on there, but when laid flat, the ears would be beside the face, turned inward, as if your profile were looking at your front with a creepy smear of connection between them. Same principle for the arms and legs. There's absolutely zero wraparound distortion on the Shroud of Turin. As far as the experimentation on the Shroud, this is where the real mudslinging begins. Sterp's findings have been questioned by skeptics basically from the time they said, here's our conclusion. The biggest claim is that the vast majority of scientists on Sterp were devout Catholics who had already made up their mind the shroud was miraculous before testing even began. The counter to this claim is that the team was actually made up of a fair mix of scientists of different faiths or no faith at all, though I believe the majority were Christian. The point has also been made that while many of these folks were scientists, especially physics and aeronautical stuff, none had any experience in medieval art and history, archaeology, or textiles. Additionally, author and researcher Joe Nickel makes the claim that some of Sterp's leaders were on the executive committee of the Holy Shroud Guild, 
a pro-Shroud organization started in 1951. Hey, what a weird fun fact. Apparently, the first ever color photo of the Shroud was taken in 1969 by Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordiglia. Is there a bell ringing on that? There was for me when I saw that name. Where had I heard that before? Turns out I heard it from me, David, back in the Lost Cosmonaut episode. This was one of the Italian brothers what tried hoaxing everybody about them Soviet space flights earlier in the decade. At least I'm 99% sure because Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordiglia did all that stuff just outside of Turin at the place they called Torre Bert. So if there's another Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordiglia, that's a more, more power to him and I'll... Uh, I'll jump in the penalty box for that, but I do think it's a coincidence, but it's funny to have someone involved in hoaxery make a cameo in this story. Skeptics have commented on the pollen said to have been found on the shroud by Dannon and Max Fry, and a couple of points have been made. Fry obtained his sample from tape-lifting material from the shroud's surface. Obviously, the shroud's long history and handling by an untold number of people has exposed it to a lot of material over the years. The basic argument here is that pollen from anywhere could show up on it, even after cleaning. Not to mention that fabric from the Near and Middle East was no stranger to medieval Europe. Fry supposedly found many grains linked to plants around Jerusalem and the Near East, and skeptics have pointed out they're mostly from insect-pollinated, not wind-pollinated plants, meaning they didn't just drift onto the shroud before, during, or after the burial of Jesus. This could play nicely with the thought that flowers appear in the shroud, but flowers don't appear in the shroud. That's more pareidolia than anything, and even more probably, wishful thinking. Even Sturp didn't find quite the collection of grains in their tests, leading to questioning of Fry's techniques and veracity. Fry's credibility has been attacked as well, as he once promoted the Hitler Diaries as authentic, a collection of personal writings of Adolf Hitler discovered by a journalist in 1980, which turned out to be a massive hoax. Dannon made his observations based on Fry's samples and didn't actually examine the shroud himself. He actually disowned his work with Uri Baruch about the examination of the flowers because Baruch had not practiced safe science. In other words, he tested samples straight from the tape they were on and basically had poor methods of examination. Bottom line, pollen doesn't prove the shroud's authenticity, age, or origin. Time to circle back to that blood supposedly on the shroud, and one of the most controversial figures in the shroud research, Dr. Walter McCrone. A chemist and microanalyst, McCrone was a rock star of the scientific world, particularly renowned for his work in microscopy. He was commissioned by Sturp in 1979 to take a look at samples they had gathered and give his expert analysis. Using polarized light microscopy, he looked at thousands of fibers from 32 different areas of the shroud. According to his report, he found that, quote, 
The faint sepia image is made up of billions of submicron pigment particles in a collagen tempera medium. The pigment's red ochre and vermilion with the collagen tempera medium was a common paint composition during the 14th century, before which no one had ever heard of the shroud. End quote. He also apparently found rose matter, orpiment, azurite, and yellow ochre pigments, and to top it off, other paint fragments of ultramarine and titanium white. Let's just take some of that titanium white and add in some happy little shrouds. No mistakes, just messiahs. He continued to research the samples and in 1980 found iron oxide, hematite, and mercuric sulfide in the red ochre and vermilion areas, concluding that it had actually been painted red ochre and then the vermilion painted on top of the blood areas and that it had been done around 1355 CE, quote, for a new church in need of a pilgrim-attracting relic. He eventually published five papers in three different peer-reviewed journal articles on the subject, and wrote the book Judgment Day for the Shroud of Turin. He was almost immediately attacked by Sterp and Shroud proponents, and has been the target of much ire and criticism since his analysis. In fact, according to Joe Nickel, Macron said he was drummed out of Sterp's research in 1980 after his findings and after Sterp held him in a secrecy agreement so they could claim no evidence of artistry had been found. Sterp countered that his data was highly questionable and misrepresented and even had peer-reviewed papers of their own disputing his claims, specifically Heller and Adler, who were leading the charge on the image-containing-blood claim. Here's a small breakdown of some of Macron's work by Global Distinguished Professor of Chemistry Joel Bernstein during a lecture for NYU. So the red pigment, which is in the blood areas, is, is vermilion, merc mercuric sulfide. Now, different samples of the paints of blood areas show varying ratios of red ochre to vermilion. So, but there's no vermilion pigment in any of the thousands of body image fibers. No vermilion pigment in any of the... So the body has no vermilion, only in the areas that were meant to show blood. So that, what's the conclusion? It was painted with ochre, and then the blood images were enhanced with vermilion. So far, so good. Now, you could say, but red ochre, which is iron oxide, could be formed from blood, because all of us have iron in our blood, right? Hemoglobin, that's what it is. So, so maybe the iron came from blood. But there's no biological source for mercury sulfide. Thank goodness we're not walking around with mercury sulfide in us. We wouldn't be walking around. Now, can we find blood on the shroud? Even given all of that, that so far none of the paint, none of the painted images appears to be blood. He tested the blood image area tapes from the right lance wound on, on one of the hands. Now, there are four different tests for blood. And if you work on a microscope, you know how to do them. They were all negative for blood on the shroud. Not a single test gave blood. All four. But if you use the same test on the proof of concept strip, the one that gave the little round circles, that shows positive for blood. Confirmation that the test shows 
what he expected it to show. If it's blood, it'll show up. If it's not blood, it won't show up. And there were no particles of index or refraction, again, how it bends light, and that's the value you get, you expect for blood. And he could go from particle to particle and check the index of refraction, and he never found any that had the appropriate index of refraction. No evidence for blood. I know this is a ton of information coming at you. Believe me, I know. I had to cram it all in my head and synthesize it. There's just one or two more points to cover before we move into some questions and conclusions. On the matter of contamination or mishandling or otherwise misinterpreting the data of the 1988 carbon dating tests, skeptics invite critics to consider a couple of things. The three labs which did the carbon dating each had control fabrics that were also tested. Fabric from an ancient Egyptian mummy, a medieval Nubian tomb, and a medieval French ecclesiastical vestment. Each lab was in full agreement on the ages of those fabrics. Repeated testing yielded similar results over and over for the labs. And keep in mind, these weren't just done in some garage in some suburb. The scientists knew what they were doing. There was actually supposed to be seven labs doing this, but the Vatican only approved three of them. They also tested some samples blind, not knowing which was a control fabric and which was the shroud, and compared the results after each lab's completion. In an article by Tom Chivers of the Telegraph.co.uk, Professor Christopher Ramsey of the Oxford Radiocarbon Lab explained that the contamination argument, quote, doesn't work because to make a 2,000-year-old object appear just 800 years old, about half the material would have to be contaminant. And that's if it was all modern. If it was older, it would have to be even more. Various tests have also suggested that the material was pure. It's also been hypothesized that the patch we tested was a modern repair, but most of us agree that's implausible because the weave is very unusual and matches the rest of the shroud perfectly. Then there are fanciful notions, like contamination with carbon monoxide, but tests have shown that carbon monoxide doesn't react with the fabric under any circumstances you might expect. He added, in archaeological science, being able to reproduce something doesn't imply that that's the technique used. If anything, it just implies that you've got a new technique you want to try out. End quote. I'll add to that to keep in mind that the shroud was carefully cleaned prior to testing and lab work, which should rule out bacteria or other contaminants. As for the carbon monoxide contamination, the Oxford lab ran several tests in 2008 to determine if it would have an effect on the outcome of the earlier dating. Testing modern linen, they found no significant reaction to high carbon monoxide concentration and also point to there being no other such date skewing from similar experiments observed to date. So how was the image made, according to Shroud skeptics? Well, well, they're not sure, and they're okay with that. They do rule out miracle or divine light. On the fringier side of theories, some have postulated it could have been a cloth pulled over Knight Templar Grandmaster Jacques de Molay after his capture and torture in 1314. 
this is mostly coming from a conspiracy book about Templars, Freemasons, and the like called The Second Messiah, based on an old portrait of de Malay, and only poorly answers big questions, namely who it is, how old, and how made. Another stretch is that the image was made by Leonardo da Vinci of Leonardo da Vinci, as in a self-portrait, as commissioned by the Savoy royal family. In this theory, da Vinci used a primitive camera obscura technique with silver sulfate to get the image onto a cloth. Apparently, this technique was known at the time, and portraits of Leo are said to match the face of the image in the shroud. Though the shroud had been around for a century before da Vinci's birth, the catch is that the Savoys knew they had a fake and wanted a more genuine relic to show off. Da Vinci agreed and only asked for one thing in payment, the strapping young stable boy of the Savoys, that he might have an assistant in his studio to shirtlessly clean up paint splatters, shirtlessly pose for portraits shirtlessly, and reach things on high shelves while not wearing a shirt. You tell me which part of that whole theory was untrue. You tell me. Painting is often arrived at for a theory, but no one has found anything like brush strokes and pro-shroud research since Macron has claimed no pigment is present in it. However, it's been postulated that maybe a brush wasn't used, and instead the image was made by patting a bas-relief sculpture with paint or chemical mixture and laying the shroud over it. Since bas-relief is only partially 3D, if you're not familiar, think of like a, a third of a statue carved out of the face of a surface. And since it's not fully 3D, it wouldn't have the wraparound distortion, and the hair lays neatly in place and such. There have been numerous ways people have achieved results that are pretty close to the shroud image, but none have yielded satisfactory results for shroud proponents. Of course, there's only so much you can try and match with it. No, no one has been able to age the thing 600 years, so perfect replica may not be attainable. Well, I mean, that, that makes it completely not attainable. Unless time travel... Joe Nickel also points that out in his research. Luigi Garlaschelli, you might remember him from the Stigmata episode, has done a number of tests to reproduce the image, and has succeeded on many levels with acid pigment wash on a real person, and a bas-relief of a face. The results were pretty good, though critics have pointed out some details missing in comparison. Last thing was the reproduction of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, you know that the Shroud of Turin is one of the most controversial relics or icon or object or images, depending on uh, how you judge it. But uh, it, it is claimed that uh, the Shroud of Turin has properties that cannot be understood, cannot be reproduced, cannot. Um, you don't know how the image had been generated. So I have followed simply a suggestion by John Nickel uh, that wrote uh, about this hypothesis in his famous book 20, more than 20 years ago. 
the only thing is that I succeeded in reproducing a life-size uh, shroud of Turin, four and a half meters long, with all the properties that were claimed until now to be impossible to reproduce, and therefore negativity, superficiality, uh, 3D information of the image, uh, no pigment applied, but uh, simply a discoloration of the top fibers of the threads, and so on. Uh, on the left, you can see the negative photograph of the Turin Shroud. On the right side, there is my reproduction. Not bad. Could be improved. I'm still working on that. Um, I had a lot of hate mail, um, hate, hate mails after this, um, after this uh, experiment. And uh, I remember one of them said, what do you think you have done? Uh, I would slap you in the face. Uh, and you look like a jerk with that pipe in your mouth, in your, in your website. What would your mother say? Well, my mother, <laughs> may she rest in peace, uh, once told me, well, Gigi, I can understand you don't believe in God, but maybe an atheist, it's not good. <laughs> maybe an atheist is not good. <laughs> I like the guy, but I'll admit, could have been a more clever punchline there. <laughs> Sorry, Mama Luigi. So, who's got questions? <laughs> I tried jotting down some thoughts as I read through this stuff. I had a bunch. I'd like to share them with you and discuss some things to think about, and then share my completely personal opinion on it as a layperson and someone completely unattached to the whole thing. So, for thoughts. First of all, you need a robust flowchart to sift through this information. Because for some stupid reason, they all mix up dates and events. So-and-so analyzed sticky tape in 1988, which verified Who's It's 1978 findings that so-and-so inspired from a 1973 report. Who's It was the first to do such-and-such such after What's-His-Name did it first in 1997. And we can't forget about that guy with the 1973 tape who was the first to do the thing. It's like painting years on cats and trying to get them to stand in chronological order. If the first historical record we have of this thing is from a bishop who says it was a forgery, why is it a thing? Look, I, I get that some people have speculated, emphasis on speculated, that the bishop was jealous of a neighboring church and the cash money it was getting, but why would this shroud be the one shroud to rule them all? You know, it was said by one of these authors that if Secundo Pia hadn't taken that photo and produced that negative, it may have just been overlooked as just another item of devotion, nothing particularly special. I mean, eventually someone would probably have taken a picture and seen the same thing, but who knows? As I read through the info on this, I got to wondering if it was hoaxed, did somebody maybe make it from an actual body, whether crucified specifically for it, or a corpse made to look crucified? It'd have to be painted or something to transfer the image, but, you know, that, that's about where I stopped, as I'm already in over my head on knowing what the hell I'm even talking about. And speaking of exactly that, the image, to me, 
has never looked like it's touched a body. It looks like a, a medieval man. The face, the hair, the, the facial hair. It looks less like a Jesus and more like he should be guarding the Holy Grail from Nazis. How's that for irony? Wouldn't a burst of energy or radiation produce a flat outline? like, Or maybe a, a silhouette? How would it make such detail? And why only going like up not like not out it's it's like old space explosions and then they update it you know to to be like a spherical explosion but the the first explosion that you see is just a flat like I don't know man if if the answer is magic then this argument has no merit sorry a lot of proof seems to be in the eye of the beholder Burial ties in the image negative, uh, flowers seen, Greek letters showing up in some spots I read, uh, blood lining up with multiple cloths, etc. People have tried lining up the sudarium of Oviedo to match with the stains in the face. It takes two things to make it work. Some cockeyed cloth placement and a whole lot of imagination. If you do go through some of the reading on this, uh, check out the part about the Greek letters. It's it's a little it's a little kooky. That's why I didn't really include it in here in its own section. Yeah, it it, it might be worth a look just on its own if you if you look at nothing else. Maybe maybe look where they talk about Greek letters in this thing. It's kind of wild. I should have included it. Sorry, sorry about that. Too late now. Here we go. A lot of people on both sides of the issue say that. The testing theories about the Shroud tends to suffer from confirmation bias, where a conclusion is decided and then evidence is sought to support it. So how do you test something like this without bias tainting the process and the results? Blind testing seems like it would make sense. Take samples from the Shroud and a couple other random cloths. Don't tell the scientist what anything is. Just ask for analysis, like blood or pollen or paint or age or anything and see what's found, which is basically what the radiocarbon testing did, although I think they just looked for a date and knew the shroud was in there somewhere of the fabrics they tested. Biased science is getting in the way, both for and against the authenticity of the shroud. Make it truly blind and maybe observed by a supporter and a skeptic, or something like that, and then we're back to me not knowing what I'm talking about, just thinking out loud. Anyway... Christopher Ramsey, from the Oxford Lab, advocated more work on the Shroud, saying, quote, It is important that we continue to test the accuracy of the original radiocarbon tests as we are already doing. It is equally important that experts assess and reinterpret some of the other evidence. Only by doing this will people be able to arrive at a coherent history of the Shroud, which takes into account and explains all of the available scientific and historical information. I tend to agree. I mean, it, that that is science, is it not? <laughs> it's, that's, that's just called science. And you can do that if the confirmation bias problem can be addressed. Ramsey made another good point in that the confidence in the medieval dating result is such that, were it not suggested to be a relic, there would be no more discussion over its age. Right? If this were just an old-timey camel blanket... Then, then, yeah, carbon dating, it's medieval, great, 
why are we talking about it still? That's that's people that would that would be what people would how they would react to that. Here's here's another question to ponder. If this were claimed to be the burial cloth of Odin, would you believe it to be authentic? Do you think there would be such debate, such detailed experimentation? Or that maybe the radiocarbon dating would be enough? Case closed. These are rhetorical questions you don't have to answer. Some skeptics go so far as to say the shroud debate is moot until you prove that Jesus even existed in the first place, which might also be a starting point for a claimed burial shroud of Odin. Prove Odin actually walked the earth and then we can talk about burial clothes. For example, um, I mean, he would have probably been burned on a, on a boat as it, as it goes out to sea, right? So, poor, poor example. Some final thoughts. And seriously, the, the, the debate is ongoing because you could sit around and talk about all the different angles of this for days, but I'll have to leave some stuff hanging out there. There's a ton I haven't touched on, and if I've done what I'm thinking I have to, which I did, I've already heaped two steaming piles of information onto your plate, so let's just leave it as is. I do hope I've given you a lot to consider. If you go out hunting for more info, just know the path will be flooded with extremely biased documentaries and lectures about its authenticity. And of course, pro-Christian sources will come to the conclusion it's real. A physical object they can point to as proof of their doctrine only strengthens their position. It adds up. It makes sense. From what I've seen, there are far and away more biased documentaries about how the Shroud is real than actual non-biased documentaries trying to figure it out one way or another. Emotional attachment to what this relic means can get in the way of approaching this scientifically and objectively. It would be very meaningful to many folks if this were real and validated their beliefs. To say it's a hoax doesn't invalidate their faith but it's certainly not a welcome conclusion for them, understandably. One problem I see in the research is that experts in several fields can weigh in and tend to think their expertise is better than another expert's. Or say something like, yeah, you may be an expert in microscopy, but you know nothing about textiles of the 1390s. Or, yeah, you may be right about Jewish customs in the first century, but I know about bees that carry one type of pollen on two nights of the year in a suburb of Jerusalem. It's not really a suburb, but more like city encroachment, you know? Like, it's the city, but it's not really the city, you know? But anyway, like I, I like it, and so do the bees, which I know all about. And then, that, I mean, at, at that point, it's just a slap fight. It's, it's an expert slap fight. Rock'em sock'em experts. At the end of the day, for me... Two things stand out above the rest. The lack of wraparound distortion and the fact that three separate labs came to similar conclusions about the dating, especially if there were blind controls. The very real and true fact that there was a relic industry which produced things like this around the time it surfaced in the historical record 
is significant as well. Personally, I'm not so concerned with how it was done, although I understand why that's a huge point of contention. I don't subscribe to the explanation that the image was created miraculously, that no one could make such detail. It's like the classic, how could this have been wrought by the hand of man? How could the pyramids have been made so perfectly clearly divine? Or, <laughs> Is such a thing even possible? Yes, it is. To be fair, <laughs> I, I, I didn't see a single source claiming that aliens made the shroud, but you know what I'm saying. Again, this is an outsider's perspective. I'm not a, an expert in any field related to the shroud. Probably not any field at all. That said, I would love to find a medieval art historian, maybe an art critic or composition scholar, because I think the dimensions are important to take another look at, especially if they don't add up or if one arm was elongated. Anyway, a textile historian, a chemist or two, and a Jewish anthropologist, that is, an anthropologist of Judaism, who can also be Jewish if they want, I don't care and get them all to weigh in on the same round of tests. This is it's it's all been done. All all those kind of experts in those fields have you know taken a look at this thing here and there over the years, but to my knowledge they've never all gotten together to to look at this at the same time or the same experiments. Of course it's going to be hard to do anything like that because the Vatican retains control of the shroud and has the first and last word on who sees it and what is done with it. Some skeptics who have researched it have said it doesn't matter how much work is done or how many facts point to the Shroud being a hoax because Shroud proponents will just move the goalposts on what is required to satisfy the question at hand. At some point, someone's going to have to accept the expertise of the experts. But that could be hard when said experts might have a bias. And that's why we're at where we're at, and why the allure of the Shroud remains. At least, in my opinion. And that's all it is, is my opinion. I've given you a lot to think about here, and if you'd like more resources to chew on before you form yours, check out the show notes for this episode, and get ready to read. For now, though, I'll leave you with those thoughts. And as for me... I think the shroud of mystery here seems to be as strong as one's faith. That's the shroud of Turin, in a sepia-toned, anatomically imperfect, herringbone-weave nutshell. Now for the negative image of the photo of this podcast. The puns. Alright you animals, I'm snuffing out the super low-hanging and probably distasteful pun of the image seen on a soiled bathroom cloth. The shroud of urine. No shroud of urine puns. You animals. The Sudarium of Oviedo in Spain came under a lot of fire when it was claimed to be part of Jesus' burial clothes. Since skeptics had already been questioning the shroud in Turin, 
their ire turned to Oviedo, and a barrage of questions was launched at the Sudarium, the Shroud again, the whole lot of it. Nobody was prepared, because truthfully, nobody expects the Spanish Shroud of True Inquisition. As I mentioned in part one, research of the Shroud has the official name of Sindonology, but did you know there was an official name for the sarcastic and mean-spirited research of the Shroud? That field of study would be condescendonology. And them's puns. Thanks for joining me for another adventure down historical mystery lane. Hope you enjoyed parsing through some of the details of the Shroud with me. Some quick shout-outs and thanks to Marvin, DJ Ham Statue, Patsy, and Chris. If you want to support the show, head over to iTunes to give a five-star review. Like the page on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Blurry underscore Photos, Instagram Blurry Photos Podcast. And if you're feeling particularly generous, there's a donate button on BlurryPhotos.org, coffee, ko-fi.com slash BlurryPhotos, and Patreon.com slash BlurryPhotos. Special shout out to Emily for supporting me on coffee. It's always appreciated, and thank you so much. Hope everyone had a great Krampus knocked in Saturnalia. And that all the holidays are treating you well. The short days in this hemisphere and the long ones down under. For this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been David Shirtlessly Shirtless, Laura. Till next time.